Go ahead and open up to Matthew 11. We're going to be reading verses 16 through 30. And I'll go ahead and start us off in 16. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would speak afresh in our hearing these truths by the Holy Spirit who speaks them afresh. Lord, may the words on this page become the living and active word of God in our ears. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In this text that was just read, Jesus exposes the human propensity for self-deception. Psychology today tells of a not-so-uncommon experience for someone who has just had a brain or spinal cord injury that has left them paralyzed. See you, Ben. It's my preaching. Does it to him every time. This, you know, recently injured, brain injured uh, patient lies on a hospital bed, his head wrapped in bandages, and the injuries left him paralyzed, but he doesn't yet know it. His doctor asks, would you be so kind as to raise your left arm, which is where he is paralyzed, and The patient will typically answer, certainly, but the hand remains where it is. It's tangled up in the sheets, will be the response. The doctor points out that the arm is laying on top of the sheets and is completely unencumbered. 
Well, well, yes, the man says, but I just don't feel like lifting it right now. That captures the essence of human persistence in pride, human persistence that the way, th- the way we do things will somehow bring us to that place of rest or accomplishment, that place of satisfaction, despite the evidence to the contrary, that we, we keep living this way and it keeps turning out bad, we just persist that we have it under control. We fail to see our delusion. Jesus helps us see what will happen in this text if only we will accept his transforming wisdom. Come to me, all who are weary and weighed down, and I will give you rest. How could it be? You're going about the country with no place to lay your head, and you're going to give us rest. You're in trouble with the powerful people of the world, and you're going to give us rest. How, how could that be? Well, we're going to explore this transforming understanding of the world under three headings. The first is judging generation, the second judging Jesus, and the third joining Jesus. So judging generation, judging Jesus, and joining Jesus. Let's look under that first heading in that first part of the text that was read, verses 16 through 19 of Matthew chapter 11. And by the way, for our guests, we're in a series in Matthew. The title of the series is Disciple 1.0. Uh, exploring the original release through Matthew's eyes. And so what we're doing is we're, we're taking a dive into Matthew's gospel and trying to see what it means to be a disciple according to the first discipleship manual, the gospel of Ma- Matthew. And, and so as we do that, we have found ourselves in chapter 11, verses 16 through 30. So let's begin reading in verse 16, again, uh, under the heading, uh, Judging Generation, meaning the generation that is doing the judging To to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Today we talk about, well, we've got Gen Z, also known as iGen or Centennials. They were born in 1976 to present, apparently. We've got Gen Y or Millennials, uh, born in 77 uh, up to 95. And then there's Generation X. You know, I wonder, we've got X, Y, and Z. I mean, are they predicting the end of the world? Like... (laughs) But anyway, X, Y, and Z, so, so, so Z uh, are X, uh, rather, born in 65 uh, to 76, and then, of course, baby boomers from 46 to 64. I won't tell you which one I'm in, but probably not too hard to figure out. So naturally, when we read, as Americans, this generation, what, to what shall I compare this generation, all, all we think about is, you know, this age bracket of people. These people born at this time in this place. How, however, one might say that millennials have a certain way of thinking or that Gen Xers have a certain other way of thinking. And we realize that not everybody born in those time frames fits that way of thinking. That, that for instance, amongst millennials, not everybody thinks like the stereotypical millennial. 
it's probably a much smaller group than one might suspect, but maybe vocal group. So this generation on Jesus' lips here is not so much a speaking about a time period as a character. It was a, a pejorative term implying their unfaithfulness to God and their refusal to follow His ways. Here, it refers to those who were rejecting and opposing him, including the ruling elite. So, so yes, they did live at that time, but, but it was a particular group of people that were living at that time that he has in mind in our text. And what is this generation like? It is like children sitting in the marketplace, the, the city center or town center as the case may have been, a place where city elders would render judgment for that town. Kids playing like they are the city elders running things. That's not uncommon to do. I mean, when we were children, we played all sorts of things like that. One group plays a wedding song on flutes, expecting the others to dance joyfully. Another group sings a funeral dirge and expects everyone else to mourn. It seems that the Jewish leaders wanted John to lighten up and dance. Because we read in verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And they wanted Jesus to stop making everybody happy. Verse 19, The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Commenting on this text, Stanley Hauerwas writes, John and Jesus have challenged the assumption that the way things are is the way they have to be. That the way things are is the way they have to be. Indeed, John and Jesus claim that the way things are is an illusion. Well, it's not well received. John's in prison. Jesus will be crucified. Yet, that is how a kingdom of peace will be brought about. Oh, the wisdom of the cross. They judged John and Jesus, that generation did, because they would not dance to their tune. They would not mourn to their dirge. But Jesus' point is that they are children and don't know what they're doing. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Hmm, sounds simple enough. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. I mean, that, as, as an axiom, that works, right? But what in the world does it mean in this context? Because the axiom doesn't seem, for me at least, to fit naturally into everything there. So I have to kind of pause and think, what, what, what is he talking about? Whose wisdom? The, the wisdom of those children playing and singing? And Well, no, I, I don't think that would fit. The wisdom of the Pharisees, the wisdom of the law, the wisdom of Jesus. I I would suggest to you that it is the wisdom of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Which has been an ongoing topic through Matthew's Gospel. He keeps bringing it up, keeps making references to it. Like at the beginning of this chapter when he says, he speaks about all that you hear and see. Hear, what did they hear? They heard the Sermon on the Mount, but... Here, I think what's being said is the wisdom of Jesus' teaching in that sermon, which his followers will prove right or vindicate as they live it out. 
as they live it out by her deeds, by the deeds done by those who will follow that wisdom. That's what the church is called to do. If we fast forward, we know it as the wisdom of the cross under Paul's epistles. The message which seems foolish to the world. The wisdom that says the way up is down. The wisdom wherein the greatest among them takes a towel and begins to wash feet like a slave, the lowest of slaves. That kind of wisdom will be proved right by her deeds, the deeds done by those who embrace it. It seems to be Luke's take on the same phrase because when Luke writes it, he says it this way, but wisdom will be proved right by all her children. So Jesus' wisdom will be vindicated as his children, the little ones, grow up learning how to walk in his ways. It seems confirmed by Matthew's use of this word, deeds. The first use is in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And the next time it shows up is in Matthew 23, toward the, almost to the end of it, right before the crucifixion. There it contrasts the deeds of the disciples and what they are to do with the deeds of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. The wisdom of Jesus will be shown to be right in the lives of the little ones, the children, the disciples. The wisdom of Jesus, the one that they are judging, the wisdom of John, the one that they are judging, will be shown to be right in the lives of the little children, the disciples. The question for us is, is the wisdom of Jesus being shown to be right? Is it being vindicated by our lives? The wisdom of the Sermon of the Mount. Is it being vindicated by our lives? Would people look at our lives and say, you know, that really does work, as crazy as it sounds. Look at their lives. That's what it's calling for. That's the plan of Jesus for the church to be the church. Well, this wicked generation judged Jesus and John. Next, we will see judging Jesus or Jesus as the judge now. And we pick that up under our second heading in verse 20. There we read, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, why does Jesus reprimand these cities? Well, it tells us because they did not repent. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that they they didn't come forward at an altar call and kneel and pray a certain set of words? No, that's not what's meant here. I think 
uh, Frederick Bruner's translation in his commentary helps. He writes it this way, because they did not change their lives. They, they did not change their lives. To repent doesn't mean to feel bad about your sins. It means to change how you think and live. I'll say that again because we need to get that. As Americans living in the 21st century, we've almost been trained to think it's feeling bad about our sins. So I'm going to say it again. To repent does not mean to just have remorse or feel bad about our sins. It means to change how we think and live. That was the issue here, clearly. That's what Jesus has called for. The last time we read the word repent... In Matthew's Gospels, when we're told that Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Repentance or repent is a summary of what Jesus taught. The Sermon on the Mount is a call to repentance, but you don't see the word repent in there. But to summarize what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll say, oh, he's saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Because he's calling us to a changed way of thinking and a changed way of living. So every time you hear, repent, think Sermon on the Mount. Some of you are thinking, you're sounding like you repeat yourself a lot. I know. (laughs) I do. (laughs) But I'm working with the text that seems to keep pointing back to this issue. The people in these towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, the people in these towns had experienced Jesus' miracles, the good grace of God, but their lives were unchanged. These cities are not judged because they didn't believe. Notice, he does not say, he began to denounce these towns in which most of the miracles have been performed because they didn't believe in him. That's not what it says. It's because they didn't change the way they think and live. They may well have believed in him in some sense of the word. They're judged because they experienced the grace of Christ. Likely even gloated in the grace of Christ, as we'll see in a moment, but remained unchanged. Remained unchanged. These cities had a reputation in the community of being places of God's visitation. But Jesus pronounces woe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Now, Chorazin was close to Capernaum, and it's in Galilee. The land sitting in darkness has seen a great light. That's where Jesus' ministry began, is in Galilee. And evidently, though we don't hear much about Chorazin or anything about them outside of this, they, like the other two cities which we hear lots about, were places where Jesus did a lot of his miracles. Woe to you, Bethsaida! Now, we know from very, many scripture texts that Bethsaida was the site of many healings that Jesus uh, worked, and including giving sight to the blind, and it's also where he fed 5,000. There's a lot going on here in Bethsaida. Imagine being the place where that miracle was worked. Yeah, yeah, just right over there outside the city in that wilderness over there. That's us. Yeah, that's where he did it. Big feast, messianic meal. 
it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now think about that. Think, th- th- think about what Jesus is saying to them. It will be more bearable for these Gentile, non-evangelized towns on the day of judgment than for you. I mean, we don't even really have category for that. What, what in the world could that mean? More bearable for these towns that Jesus never visited. Now, he does come close to Tyre later on and heals a woman outside the city, but never actually goes there. Why? Why would it be more bearable for them? Because Tyre and Sidon would have responded to Jesus' preaching if he had done the miracles there. They would have had changed lives if he had done the miracles there. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? Now, Capernaum's the adult hometown of Jesus. That's home for him. That's base of operations. That's where he keeps going back to, right? And when, when, when he's going home. Hangs out there. A lot of things happen there. We see it repeatedly in the Gospels. And it seems that they were quite proud of that fact. Notice what Jesus says. Will you be lifted up to the heavens? There must have been talk about how they were being lifted up to the heavens. Look at what God is doing. The very center of the preaching of the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. No, you'll go down to Hades. Now, these two lines are right out of Isaiah 14. Verses 13 through 15. He captures verse 13, the beginning of 13, and then he jumps into 15 and paraphrases it. But it's right from that text. But if you go to Isaiah, you'll discover that it was about the fall of the king of Babylon. Remember, they had been captives, and they're wanting God to bring them back to the land from captivity and free them. And even though they were back in the land, they were still in the captivity. So they're still waiting for that freedom. And, and, And so he references this fall of the king of Babylon, who had said to himself, I will ascend to the heavens. And then in verse 15, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. So minimally, Jesus is poking at their pride and pompous attitude. Ironically, they're proud because of the grace visited to them or upon them by Jesus. They may well have been building a multi-million dollar civic auditorium for Jesus to come and preach in, for all we know. Look at what we're doing. Heaven's going to be right here. But no changed lives. He may, with that reference to the king of Babylon and our knowledge of human tendencies... He may be also pointing out their militaristic understanding of the kingdom. It is not uncommon. There are so many stories, manifold stories of people who latch on to the biblical teaching about Christ's kingdom coming and and actually being present through his people, but then they apply militaristic attitudes and ideas to that. We're going to take over the world. We're going to run the world. We're going to make people live this way. Oh, that's just glorious. You can have it, not interested. 
And in fact, Jesus would be saying, if he's, if he's hinting at that, he's, he's saying that you're no different than the oppressive kingdoms of the world. How often have those who are Christian, having experienced so much of God's grace through Scripture and teaching and church life, how much have they looked down upon others in, in history as pagans who God had not favored and, and, and then they did much harm to those, quote, pagans, justified by how favored they were. Will you be lifted up to heaven? No, you'll be cast into Hades. Many think that the Edict of Milan was one of the greatest moments in church history. I mean, 313 A.D., Christianity became legal. Persecution has ended. It's now the state religion. Those more discerning wonder if it isn't one of the worst moments in church history. Now we can use the sword to enforce our beliefs. But, but then whose beliefs are those? The name Capernaum means, that the meaning of the, the, the name itself, means the field of repentance, the city, city of comfort. Field of repentance or city of comfort. But in fact, they had not repented. They had not changed their lives, so they would not have comfort but destruction. Jesus judges those towns according to the grace they had received but not responded to. The grace they had received but not responded to. As Craig Keener says it, God judges peoples according to the opportunities they have had to respond to his truth. God judges people according to the opportunities they have had to respond to his truth. They received grace, but they were not saved by that grace because they did not respond to that grace. Listen, they received grace, but they were not saved by that grace because they did not respond to that grace. We are indeed saved by grace, but only when we respond to grace. Paul describes what that looked like in his life in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, he says, I have worked harder than than, than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I am what I am by the grace of God. But His grace was not without effect. May His grace not be without effect in our lives. Amen? Paul spoke to the Corinthians concerning the Lord's table, which we partook of this morning. and The fact that they had not discerned the Lord's body properly. Now, we have a tradition that I think wrongly most scholars would now agree, wrongly asserts that the point of that is that we need, before we partake of the meal, stop and discern the body, repent of any sins we may have. And that's all well and good. It's not the point of the text. Paul's concern with the Corinthians is the same kind of concern that, that Jesus is having with these people in Capernaum. is you're partaking of the Lord's table, but you're not discerning its impact, its meaning for your life. You're... You're not feeding the the hungry person across from you. Jesus says, take, this is my body for you. 
but you're not willing to take your lunch for them. They weren't being affected by the grace they were even symbolically receiving in that meal. Grace for Paul meant works. Harder work than all of them. But he was not saved by those works. Jesus does not tell Tyre uh, Tyre and Sidon or even Sodom that they are going to hell in this text. He doesn't. He tells those who attended his rallies and may have bragged about being the towns that Jesus favored that they're going to hell. What do we even do with that? It's not uncommon for Christians to proclaim how those people are going to hell. I don't find anywhere where Jesus says those people are going to hell. They may or may not be, but I'm, my point is that Jesus said to the people who had experienced his grace and had not responded to it that they were. So if we're going to focus on that, we need to focus on it the way that he focuses on it. Are we being transformed by his grace? Grace that was there for them. It's like the person who says to you, well, what about the person who's never heard? Well, I don't know, but I do know what the Bible says about the person who has heard repeatedly, like you. Again, Bruner notes this. Every member of a church has Jesus, for Jesus is present in his word, fellowship, and sacraments. But Jesus does not have every member of his church. He has only those who, under the impact of his miraculous grace, are actually changing. Well said. I'm sure glad he said it. Somebody might get upset if I said it. So that's why I like reading guys like that. You know, you can get mad. I didn't say it. He did. I, you know. <laughs> Listen, associating yourself with Jesus for the benefits it brings you isn't the same as having a changed life. Accepting Jesus to help you fulfill your dreams is not the same as repentance. Changing how you live in accordance with his wisdom. So how do we avoid this judging Jesus? Because that's a pretty strong judgment, right? How do we avoid judging Jesus and experience the promised rest that this next section leads us to? And we'll look at that under the third heading, joining Jesus. Read with me in verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What are these things, all things, or, or, or uh, that you have hidden these things, these, these hidden, and then later he says revealed to this other group, hidden and revealed things. What are these things of verse 25? Or the all things of verse 27? Well, there isn't an explicit antecedent. In other words, there's, there, usually if I say, you know, uh, Donna went to the store and then she, well, you know that she refers back to Donna. That's the antecedent to she. But here, 
these things. You know, if I said, well, I, I, I went and got grocery and then I put those things away, you'd know I was referring to the groceries. But there's no particular antecedent in the text. So what are these things? I believe it's the wisdom which will be vindicated by the works of the disciples, the wisdom of the cross. I mean, that's the rhythm line of the whole chapter. This, as we called it last week, the gospel plays in stereo, this other message that is being spoken by the text that John had missed, that Jesus is sending him back to listen to afresh. This is that which is hidden from the wise and revealed to babes. Paul says the same in to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following, he says, For the message of the cross, or you could even say the logic of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. For to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then in verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And then in chapter 2, Paul picks back up on this same thought. Well, he hasn't dropped it, but he zeroes in again in in, in verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to naught, to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom. A mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age, none, not one, not any of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would, have, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, The things God has prepared for those who love Him. These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The wisdom of the cross. That's what's hidden, has been hidden, and that's what Jesus came and revealed and is being revealed to those who have ears to hear. Listen, it was true then, it's still true now. The rulers of this age don't understand this wisdom. Politicians don't understand This wisdom. The power brokers of our day don't understand this wisdom. It's been hidden from the wise and the learned. Now, I need to to put a pause button on here and explore something because of who our our human nature. We we take verses like this and we we have a tendency to think that God is any intellectual. That God has a thing with education. Don't, Don't get an education... You know, whatever you do, if you're going to serve God, don't go to the cemetery. This is their word for seminary. I can tell you've heard that before, right? I mean, it's like. See, the verses like this have been used to promote ignorance and create an anti-intellectual bias within the church. I mean, as if God somehow prefers stupidity to... Smart. And it's often used to keep people deceived by teaching that is rooted in a false understanding of Scripture. And that is not what's going on here. Paul, just 
to be aware. Paul was one of the most highly educated people of his day. He went to the equivalent of Harvard in his day for school. And God used that mightily. Now, he had to overcome some things in Paul to do so, but God used that mightily. Luke, who penned more of the New Testament in actual words and volume than anyone else, was clearly educated simply by the the manner of Greek with which he wrote. He was a very educated person. And some, I mean, evidently a doctor. So, we got that. The author of Hebrews, the letter that we're going through about once a month um, here, who some actually argue was Luke, but based on the style of writing, but largely. But whoever it was, was very well educated. It's written with an amazing grasp of the, the language. And, and so they can tell that whoever wrote it was extremely educated. And by the way, Jesus and his brother James, there's significant evidence that they were extremely well educated. So education isn't the problem. You see, these that I just mentioned, they were loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's a good thing to do. The wise and learned that Jesus is speaking of were those in power. Education at that time was available at large only to the wealthy. The poor had no access to it. So to say the wise and the learned was just another way of saying the rich and the powerful. It was the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the very ones who were actually oppressing the poor. And we see that later in Matthew, how they would take widows' houses. They were, they were using every little uh, law and code and, and phrase that they could to justify their taking people's property from them so that they are now out of a, a way to feed themselves and they're stuck in perpetual poverty. And to run around the law that said that you have to give it back every 50 years and make reasons why that didn't apply to them. That's what's at issue here, is injustice. The intelligence that they had to bring to the table, the wisdom that they had is the wisdom that keeps the powerful in power. It's the wisdom that props up the illusion of superiority. Maybe the delusion would be a better word. There's not a premium on ignorance. However... Human wisdom will never grasp the wisdom of the cross. The wisdom, that says to those, the wisdom that says to lose your very self in order to find it. You can't find that in a book. You can't educate yourself to that. It goes against our education in a lot of ways. So be aware of that. That God's ways are counter to the ways of human thinking. Be aware of that as you pursue loving the Lord your God with all your mind. Amen? Okay, back off my tangent. Back to the sermon. Who then can relate to the Messiah? And how does one do so? Well, let's read what comes lastly in our text. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I like, this, right? I like to translate it, all who are weary and weighed down, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, first off, I don't know about you. We've been walking through a pretty tough chapter section so far. And you get to this and it's almost like it's out of left field. Like, what? How how do we get from woe to you to come to me, all you are weary and weighed down? I think it's far more natural a transition than we would suppose because of how they would have heard this. First of all, who is he speaking to? Who can come? The weary and weighed down. These are the ones who are laboring under the weight of the world's demands. Oppressive regimes were often, culturally in in, in Scripture, they were often pictured in the Old Testament as placing yokes on the people. You can see it in Jeremiah and other places. So these regimes would come in and put a yoke on the people's necks, as it were. The strong and powerful nations yoking themselves up to the weak and the needy, it just ground them into the ground. It wore them out. It was oppressive. A yoke was a a wooden frame placed over the necks of two oxen or other animals in order that they might accomplish the work together. Yokes are often used on captured peoples as well. Take, Take slaves and and put this yoke on their neck, and then somebody else, is they're, they're connected together. They can't run away. And so it became a symbol of subjection and servitude. Interestingly, the law forbids the yoking of a donkey and an ox together, which, according to Jewish commentary on that text, was to protect the weaker animal so that the strong one doesn't just wear it to death. An example might be this, an ox can eat while it grinds, so an ox can take a bite and just keep chewing it for hours on end while uh, the donkey that it's strapped to can't. It has to stop to eat, so it just keeps working until the donkey falls and dies. I mean, you realize this says that, that God's interested in the ethical treatment of animals. What do you call that, Jita, G- Jesus for the ethical treatment of I don't know. Anyway. So these two ideas work together. The powerful, yoked to the weak, create oppression. Weary and weighed down people. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and weighed down by the oppressive systems of this world, if you will. These are the same people that were being ministered to in Jesus' answer to John at the beginning of the chapter. The blind, the lame, the lepers, the dead, uh, the dying, the poor. Jesus, like wisdom in the book of Proverbs, beckons come. Like the Lord himself in Isaiah 55, beckons come. This is the call to discipleship. Come to me. But how, then, does the Messiah bring rest? How does he bring this rest? Well, it's clearly not the rest of inactivity. It's it's not the rest of inactivity. If you come to him, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he states quite plainly here that he's going to put a yoke on you, which means you're going to be working. 
That's what yokes are for. You're going to be doing something. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had become as oppressive as the Romans in their demands. But honestly, the Sermon on the Mount seems to only increase those demands. And in order to have the righteousness that Jesus calls for, we have to learn from him. To take his yoke upon us is done by learning from him. In context, Jesus is saying, take my Sermon on the Mount upon you and learn from me. That's the yoke. He gives us rest by inviting us to take his yoke upon us, to be yoked together with him. So you've got this wooden thing that your neck is tied to, and you look over into the other one, and who's there but Jesus? Now, now remember, unequal yoking is a problem because the powerful will just drag the weak. But yet, this is the most unequal yoking you could ever imagine. Jesus and us? Which is why, that's why it's important that he points out, for I am meek and lowly in heart. (laughs) Wait a minute, you're king. Yeah, I'm, I'm meek and lowly in heart. You see, this will never work unless the most powerful is the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, something to be used for his own advantage, as the NIV puts it. I'm reading the ESV right now. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being uh, found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yoke to that one, it works. Yoke to the one who uses all the power of being God in order to humble himself and, and obey the Father and, 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 and to become obedient all the way to the point of death. Imagine that, the power it takes for God to die. Yoke to that powerful one who's meek and lowly in heart. Now that can work. And that can give me life. And I can learn from him so that I can actually do what he's asking me to do with the power that he's infusing in me and the forgiveness that he's providing for me. That's how we respond to the grace that's been given us and we actually have changed thinking and living. When we have... When we learn from him, we have the same mind in us. It was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God. As Philippians 2.5 introduces those verses I read a moment ago. Jesus says, you want rest? Follow me to the cross. Sound impossible? Well, yeah, I, I get that. Well, don't worry, you're yoked to me. My power will be available to you. Just look over at me and see how I did it and then have the same thinking as I had and keep walking. 
All of a sudden, the otherwise problematic unequal yoking becomes the greatest gift of all because of the unusual nature of how God in Christ uses his power. Are you still living in the self-deception that human wisdom, your own wisdom, or even the combined wisdom of humanity provides all the answers you need? Last night, Donna and I were, we went out to get some tacos for dinner. Uh, a little place on Central, I highly recommend. But anyway, we had to walk a few blocks from where we parked because, you know, parking's like there. And so we're walking and we pass a place that offered everything from leadership training to psychotherapy, which I found to be an interesting mix. <laughs> and, and Donna commented that with all the training and advice available in our country, you'd think there wouldn't be any more problems in the world. In the words of our text, you'd think that we'd all be at rest. It should be clear that living in a so-called Christian land, or even being raised in a church that does expository preaching, is not sufficient. In fact, they may only raise the stakes. Is God's grace working effectively in you and me. Now, oftentimes when you raise this kind of thinking and when you bring, even after a sermon like this, somebody might respond with the always acceptable line, well, I live under grace to excuse why they don't do the works that Jesus calls us to. The people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum thought they lived under grace too. But it turned out to be self-deception. Repentance, again, is not feeling bad for our sin and claiming grace. Repentance is putting ourselves in the yoke with Jesus and letting his wisdom replace our own as the means to true rest. The only way to experience the rest that Jesus offers is to be yoked to him in the work that he is doing in the world. A mission of restoration by the way of the cross. It is restful. Because Christ is the one in the other half of the yoke. He's he's in the other half. That's why it's restful. It's restful because it will bring true peace, true shalom. It's restful because we cease from laboring in our own wisdom and begin laboring in Christ's wisdom as we learn from him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Help us to learn from you, to take your yoke upon us, which is your wisdom, which is the Sermon on the Mount, which is the wisdom of the cross. Lord, help us to put ourselves in that yoke so that when we look over, as we are laboring, we will see you in the other half of the yoke looking right back at us and saying, follow me. For we are the church. And you've called us, the church, to be in that yoke with you, to labor together, join to you, and therefore join to one another in this work of restoration. 
Lord, may the grace of God work effectively in us.